Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's election day. I hope you are getting your vote out or burning ballots in a drop box one way or another. You need to get out there and do it. And that's why I'm coming on the Last Laugh podcast to get the word out to those last folks who are on the fence who might want to vote for four more years of soft fascism. I'm your guy. It's election day. Can you believe it? This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I am so excited to be joined today by the brilliantly funny Anthony Atamanik. Three years ago, Anthony launched The President Show on Comedy Central and has since put out what I consider to be the most scathing and incisive comedy about President Donald Trump ever produced. So I thought he would be the perfect guest for this very special episode for an election day that could maybe, just maybe, stop Trump from dominating every aspect of our lives. We get into all of it on today's show, including how Anthony started impersonating Trump in the first place, and when he thinks he'll finally be able to leave his greatest creation behind. So please vote, and then listen to me with Anthony Atamanik. Thank you so much for for doing this. I'm really excited to have you on, and I really wanted to have you Thank on you. because I don't think anyone else has captured Donald Trump in a comedic way in quite the way that that you have over these last few years. Oh, thank you. There's just been this whole debate, and then maybe you saw, you know, there was like a big New York Times Magazine story recently, and there's been all these stories like, is Trump bad for comedy, and what's going to happen? And now, if he goes away, how is comedy going to be different? I stopped reading all that shit years ago, <laughs> Matt. I don't read yeah. any of that. Yeah. After my last special, I started to give up on, or when I think when my book came out and my book, American Tantrum, the Donald J. Trump Presidential Archive, which was written in late 2017, early 2018. And the last chapter of the book is 2020, sans the virus. That's the only thing we did not get. <laughs> the only thing you didn't predict. It is a full roadmap of what has happened so far. The fact that that book sort of hit with a thud, and the publishing company, good or bad, they thought, oh, we'll make it a comedy book. So, of course, it ended up in the back of a Barnes & Noble next to the wooden toys. <laughs> I sort of gave up. I went, you know what? You can only say how many times, here's the warning in comedy form. Here's the warning. Here's the warning. And then you give up. And so then I gave up on the analysis because if my work is all predicated on the analysis is bad to begin with, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And my work is saying, hey, your analysis and even how you're doing it, the whole conditions of the experiment are wrong. Then why would I even bother reading the analysis of the analysis, which is all <laughs> wrong and off anyway? Yeah, exactly. Your show, The President's Show, did have this really uncanny ability to predict the future and, and what Trump would do. And even, you know, this past week, he did a rally um, where he was talking about trucks in a way that was very reminiscent of the, yeah. you know, infamous uh, truck uh, clip from The President's show, which I think I told you this before, but I, I laughed really harder at that watching the premiere of your show than than anything else over the last few oh, years. thank you. Um, and I know that that wasn't even supposed to air, right? That was kind of a an improvised thing that you just captured in the moment. We filmed that weeks before we even, I think, did our first test show, I think. So, like, we were just doing field pieces to bank them and to sort of get used to it. And I think the tone of, you know, we were sort of setting the tone there, right, where it's it's a little Sid Caesar and a little more, you know, modern as well, right? Because mm -hmm. we have, you know, Trump can't get into the door, get in the room and stuff. There's things from that piece that, you know, nobody, of course— remembers and nobody watched the fucking show but like you <laughs> I know did, I the, did. thank you but like you know there's all these things in there that i think are very in indicative of how the rest of the show plays out but we did that before we even really understood how the rhythm of the in-studio show would go 
And so we were near the end. And, you know, that was the first time I got exposed to what is it like to be outside as Trump and all these things. So that moment, the truck monologue, when I'm sitting there, I just remember in my head resting and everyone's like, okay, we're done. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done. Right. (laughs) So I was legitimately just done, but in the makeup sitting there. And then it was hot too. And uh, when the truck honked, my face, when I kind of look up, is me sort of being like, ooh, that's like, this is perfect, and they are rolling. Mm-hmm. And I think we were shooting B-roll. It was just we were we were shooting me sitting on the stairs. That's what it was. I was I was exhausted, so I said, let's just get B-roll of me sitting on the stairs and stuff, and that way you can cut it in if yeah. we need anything, you know. And then that happened, and they kept going, and I just prayed that they would keep going. And, you know, and then I... I improvised that monologue thinking, well, fuck it. We probably won't use this, but, you know, we'll keep it anyway. I want to go back to the tower, Bridget. We're almost done, sir. (laughs) Anything else you want to show us? I don't know. A truck! Oh, boy, oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy. There we go. Yeah, Hong Kong. Hong Kong goes the truck. Hong Kong goes the truck. Hong Kong goes the truck. Did you guys see? The truck goes Hong Kong. Did you see that? Did you see it? Unbelievable. It's so crazy. And you see how it moved? Big trucks, big wheels. And the big wheels go around. And then when you pull on the horn, the horn goes crazy. And the truck's so unbelievable because it's a tremendous truck. I wish we had a bigger truck. Wouldn't it be great if a big truck came? Like a big truck. A big 18-wheeler truck. And they're all down. And then a guy showed up, and he was a macho guy. And he says to me, you drive the truck. And then I get to drive the truck, and I get to go all the way down, and I drive it right into the river. And then I drown in the river, and I feel the water seeping over me. And then the air leaves my lungs. And in the moment where my body starts to react and wants air, I let go. And when I let go, the water fills my lungs. And I'm finally at peace. And only then do I find the complete and absolute solitude that I've wanted. Anyway, I want to go home, Bridget, entirely. That was not the only thing that you predicted that Trump would do, um, including your sort of catchphrase that you ended the cold open with, I'm the president, can you believe it? And then yep. he he said that afterwards too, right? He said that of two weeks later in the Rose Garden <laughs> when he, the health care. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I'm the president, can you believe it? Let's roll. How am I doing? Am I doing okay? I'm president. Hey, I'm president. Can you believe it, right? Yeah, lots of things. Um, His fear of ramps, I think you predicted pretty well with the sort of the inability to get up the curbs. Oh, yeah. And then I also was I was rewatching a bunch of the show and you did a press conference as Trump in a CDC coat. Yeah, that was the virus episode, (laughs) which also totally predated uh, COVID. But that was sort of about the virus of the of the Russia hoax. Yeah, yeah. We we, we sort of were mapping it. But I'm glad it, it ended up hitting on the thing of like putting Don Jr. in the little boy in the bubble thing and then the alarm still goes off and it's like trumps the virus because i feel like fortunately we accidentally hit upon an idea that was relevant even though you know that one it's hard to claim oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. we predicted it but (laughs) but but, you know some of them you go i'll take it if someone if someone exactly tweets it i guess but the events of the past few days have forced me to return home to update you on the status of this terrible outbreak What outbreak? The horrible virus that has infected the brains of millions of people, forcing them to believe bogus, ridiculous, well-documented things about me and Russia. Some know it as Kremlin influenza. To others, it's Moscow disease. And to an unlucky few, it's spirea. Those aren't diseases. Yes, they are. I'm wearing the science coat. It's spread through fake news media, and I alone can fix it. Now, don't worry. We're going to contain this outbreak, because tonight's theme is containment. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely would have loved to see your take on the on Trump getting COVID and just all of this that's happened over the last few weeks. I mean, do you think about that now that you're not doing the show? Do you think, oh, this is how I would have wanted to go about this? Or does it kind of feel like it's so far in the, in the past that you've moved on? I guess the answer should be, oh, I moved on. But no, I mean, Mike Pence, uh, Pete Gross, who's one of the showrunners, mm-hmm. Jason Ross, Christine Nangle, we have like a text chain, Adam Pally. We have a text chain where when things happen, we sort of write what we think would happen. Or I'll call Mike Drucker and do do what I think would be the five first five minutes of the show mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Because we're all friends and we're friends before the show and obviously friends after. So I would say, you know, we do it casually. And I'm on my live show on Twitch, the Coffee with Tony show, I'll definitely do like we had you know, today we had Adam Pally on playing Brett Kavanaugh mm-hmm. and uh, Trump and Kavanaugh talked about Amy Coney Barrett and all that. And, you know, Pally would have played Kavanaugh if we had gone, you know, that yeah, far and things that like that. Great. So we all knew what we would have done. So the honest answer is no, of course, it's the to me, it will probably remain the greatest slight of my life that I did not get to continue doing that show because I felt like we did a public service in the show. And I feel like, yes, I've obviously I enjoyed the money and I enjoyed employing people and all that. I'm not going to pretend like it's virtuous, but there was a virtuous part of it. We, I will stand by the fact that we are the only people who ever got it right. And all the people who've come before us and all the people who've come after us have only either built on what we did or they've taken what we did and done it in a different way, or they've done nothing and people just fall in love with it because that's the new thing that they fall in love with, you know? So what are you going to do? Yeah. I was listening to your interview that you did with, uh, with Sarah Cooper uh, earlier in the, in the summer. Oh yeah. And you did, you gave her credit for being maybe the only person who is, who has uh, bested you in, in this world just by doing something totally different. Yes, it was totally different. And it was a, what do you call it? As a viral thing, it was a real sensation. I think it really reframed separating out Trump's voice from his body and, and machinations, I think, uh, became something that was a rewarding way to make people have a, a second look at who he is and what he says and what he does. And I think that um, for her, I mean, I know because she said, I mean, she said this, which is that it's, of course, you know, you get to the point where people are like, top this and top that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you're always looking for it as a gateway in, you know, doing the president show. Yes, there's the part of it where you're like, oh, my God, we'd have so much fun with this take. And part of that is going, we'd have so much fun with this take because no one's doing a take. No one's doing a take yeah. on television. Right. I'm saying that like, you know, Sarah Cooper at the time was, you know, on online. But I'm saying on TV, there's no take that to me is valid or makes any sense and I think only actually really helps him or or neutralizes an argument. Yeah. But the other side of it was that, and I think that I would agree with Sarah Cooper's special, which I haven't watched, but my guess would be that you go, this is my opportunity. This ca- was the catalyst for me to do this thing. She's fortunate because of the lip syncing. She got to just sort of step away, I think, from that. I think my catalyst got me into a position where I had to figure out how do I do SCTV? How do I do all my sketches? How do I do my Kubrick tributes? How do I do all the things I want to do? Mm-hmm. But I'm stuck with this fucking character and I've got to do this. And so that was my goal in the show. My goal in the show was I want to do my sketch show. I want to do my perspective. And my hindrance is that I have to play Trump. Yeah. I'm glad for her that she was able to do it and and escape it. Yeah. I mean, it helped you that Trump was just such a pervasive and still is such a pervasive character in our you know, collective imagination. So you, you know, it kind of worked and you could, you could kind of bring him into anything that you wanted to. He became all things. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about, you know, how the show predicted the future. And then you also did this great, the, I think the the last special you did was the, the fall of Donald Trump, the mockumentary, right? Yes. Yeah. The, um, which I thought was, just, was so good. Um, and just, and there's just so much, so much rich material in that. And now we're kind of at this precipice where, you know, as we're speaking, we don't know what's going to happen with the election. But I think everyone's starting to imagine a world after Donald Trump is no longer president. So I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's a, it's I wouldn't a, be imagining that yet. <laughs> it's an exercise that you kind of went through when you made that special. So what was that? Yes. What was that experience like for you to to kind of think through 
where is this all heading? Well, you know, I think that what's interesting is that um, we in that show were even more predictive than just about Trump. And I think that if there's two things that, you know, if there was two instances, which is the 2016 Trump versus Bernie run, Mm -hmm. and then there's the 2020 Trump versus Bernie run. Which not a lot of people obviously saw the pandemic cut. Yeah, the and those are the, li- the live shows that you were doing with James Adomian, who those are the live shows Bernie brilliantly as James. well. Yeah, yes, and so this was, you know, obviously it made sense for us to do it a second time. I knew there'd be a lot of diminishing returns, so to me it was really great just to get to do it, but also to hone another show that you know to me it's not predictions; it's pointing out obvious. Uh, gaps and problems. I don't <laughs> yeah. see it as a prediction. And so to me, hindsight 2030 wasn't just about the fall of Trump, but it was about all the things that were left in his wake that he uncorked. And so if you notice the in, in fall of Donald Trump, Trump runs against himself, which I think is sort of what has happened metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not like Biden's any great shakes. So Biden's sort of, you know, hiding in the background, just basically trying to wait his way into the presidency. Not do anything that will lose it for himself. Right. And he, and he and Kamala, are, you know, don't get it. Don't get me wrong, by the way, because I am an ultra lefty and believe in $30 minimum wage and mm-hmm. Medicare for all and all those things. I just am not a I'm not just I'm also not a horseshit salesman who thinks that I can just keep telling people, you know, how, how, you know, that what we should do is ignore reality and I guess have a third party without any money. The Mm -hmm. only way you have a political party is with billionaires giving you money. Yeah. There's, there's no way you have a vibe. Yeah. Yeah, As their system is now. And and the only other way you have a third party is a card table with a fucking LaRouche sign. That's the (laughs) other way you have a, a, a third party. So we ended it with, Jill Stein, you know, Trump splits the vote and Jill Stein wins, right? Which, of course, didn't happen. (laughs) But the metaphor being is that then, as our historian points out, things get even worse. And I think it's because once you uncork the idea of autocratic power, then you have all kinds of people who hungry, hungry hippo towards how can they control things? Mm -hmm. How can they be the ones to set the agenda? And even well-meaning people will take on that autocracy and the draconian idea of telling people how to be and what to do because it's for their benefit. So I think we tried to predict that the long term is that Trump going away doesn't change the fact that America is marching towards violence, division, and decline. So that was sort of the ultimate goal. So the envisionment of the future was sort of prosecutions and you know, Trump going on the run and ending up in this nursing home. And I think what we wanted to show was that he is, you know, a creature that's basically designed to light up when the camera's on him and that his only skill is dividing people against each other. And we have sort of this moment at the end where he's in this nursing home doing this sort of Altamont moment where he's giving his speech. And to me, it was very predictive of what happened to the villages, And this sort of like turning people against each other and this woman stabs this man in the neck with (laughs) a fork. And so to me, hindsight 2030 continued to predict. And and I do want to say that like, yeah, I have, uh, you know, I guess I don't want to sound like some, you know, cuckoo centrist, which is why I felt like I needed to give my leftist bona fides. But I really am disgusted with what has happened out of an element of the leftist movement, which I think is so disingenuous. And I think it's perverted and sad because there's a real movement there when was the beginning of the end well i guess it was 2018 when the democrats took the house and made alexandria cathio cortez the speaker and chair of ways and means and oversight in banking and foreign affairs and starting pitcher on the softball team the new democratic-led congress announcing their intentions to file articles of impeachment it was scary everyone was talking about impeachment because of what Cohen told them and because of what Eric told them, and because of what I told them, and because of what Melania told them, and because of what Ivanka told them, and because of what Jared told them. This was different than with Mueller because Cortez was, well... She was hot. (laughs) She was like Cheetah Rivera with subpoena power. I mean, the president got his wires crossed. Speaker Ocasio-Cortez is a very treacherous, beautiful, un-American, lovely, dishonest, luscious, Dad was thinking with his dick, and his dick didn't work anymore. Can you kind of go back to the beginning of all this for a minute? And and how did you 
start impersonating Trump? And, and how did that first time go for you? Oh, I mean, when I did it, it was like an improv show at UCB in August. That was just like a throwaway. Yeah, it was just sort of for fun. And then I think, uh, and then, you know, my friend Shannon O'Neill, who's the artistic director at the time, you know, said, uh, you should write a show. And I was used to writing shows within a week to put up for a variety show I did called The Tony Show, which I had started with John Gamberling was the Tony and Johnny show. So I did a, a show called Trump Dump, which basically, you know, Almost everything in Trump Dump came true, actually. Um, and it was pre- it was a press conference in March of 2017 after Trump had won. This is way before. This is when he was running. This was September 7th of 2017. Yeah. I or mean, 2015, 20, 2015, right? yeah. 2015. In fact, I just did the anniversary, and it was five years later to the day, literally to the day and to Labor Day. Oh, wow, yeah. Like, it was the same exact date and day. And, uh, oh, that first impression. I think it it was very high-pitched. I think it was like that. <laughs> I think I did it like that. I don't even think that's... It was not even that good. Like, that. that's good compared to what yeah. I did. Yeah, it was not great. But I had the attitude... It was funny. The attitude came first. Mm-hmm. Like, the attitude and the sort of, like, rat-packy dismissive quality. I mean, you know, I guess in this interview, you could see there's a lot of sort of Trumpy qualities to me in the <laughs> sense of broad stroke statements and, you know, uh, ad hominem attacks on people. <laughs> yeah. So as I think as Trump, I, I think those things are close to my personality already. Yeah. And then when James and I paired up to do the October shows, he, his Bernie was already way ahead of my Trump. So I had to really, Study And so I'd studied it more like an acting job because it's not like I'm some master impressionist. You know, I'm a comic. You hadn't done impressions really before this, right? No, I mean, I do impressions, but like for fun. Yeah, not like not like James. And he's very serious about it. (laughs) Yeah, I never went up. I never went up to a comedy club and went, well, you know, what would William Shatner say? And I was like, well, uh, my wife's at the bottom of the pool. (laughs) Like I never did that, but I can do a good William Shatner. Yeah. Yeah. Put that way. You know, I mean, you must have had to just watch him even more than the rest of us watch him. So what do you feel like you learned about Trump from the entire this entire experience of of learning how to embody him in this way? What have I learned about him? Mm-hmm. I mean, the same thing I knew from the beginning. He's he's one of those types of personalities. It's he's a street. He's a corner guy. That's all. He's mm-hmm. a corner guy. He's he's a corner guy who's, you know, standing in front. You know, he's the guy who, like, when you go up to the bodega counter, he's got, like, ten scratchers, and he, like, stands to the side so you can buy your stuff, and then he goes right back to the counter and, and is talking the ear off of the guy, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the, the guy at the, the counter, you know, while he's scratching loser tickets. And, you know, I learned about him that... uh he tells the truth. He actually tells the truth all the time. He tells the truth in two different ways. He either directly tells you, like I, I don't want, I want to be president for twelve years. Mm-hmm. And he's telling the truth. He's not lying. You know, he says, "I'm kidding. I'm kidding." It's amazing that I'm kidding has become an excuse for the leader of the free world. Yeah, and sarcasm. Yeah, and then the second thing I would say is that um, he tells truth uh, in projection. So what he assigns to other people right. is the truth about oh, totally. him. So he's a totally open book. You know, I I would say also I learned that when he's not trying to be, he's funny. He is legitimately funny. Yeah. You know, he's got that why he has a wise ass take that sometimes is is kind of funny. Do you think that's a part of the secret to his uh, political success is his his ability to be funny in that way? No, I don't think he's had real political success. I think he stole the election in 2016. I think he gamed 76,000, 77,000 votes. Mm -hmm. I think the election was close enough that he was able to game it in different counties. And I think that he stole the election by, you know, using apparently, you know, the heroes of a certain segment of this WikiLeaks folks Mm -hmm. who, to me... You know, like the pathetic husk of what used to be Glenn Greenwald, you know, goes out and and spews idiotic vitriol uh, because, you know, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. And so sitting there and talking about open information as if you can just dump open information makes no sense because the whole point of journalism, the whole point of the system that we've set up uh, and there's a reason we set up this system. 
okay, is because we had the yellow papers. We had information ungoverned without journalistic principle or editorial oversight. And what it led to was rumor, suspicion, and accusation and anonymous uh, manipulation of the vote down to when Ben Franklin was doing that. We try to act like this is all new, but it's not all. It's none of it's new. Mm. None of it's new. None of it's true. Trump has not had success. Trump has lied and stumbled his way through aggressive attrition into power. I did see you say somewhere that you do think you don't think he's dumb, that you don't think he's that there is a there is something smart about the way he's gone about this. I think he's a survivalist. I don't think he's smart in the sense of like, you know, integrating specifics and being able to come up with some sort of solution, things like that. I don't think he's smart in terms of like what we maybe would perceive of as intelligent, which would be to have opposing points of view in front of you and you vet those points of view, you know, also armed with lots of information that you retain and then make a judgment. And then that judgment (laughs) is, you know, disappointing or positive to the population and you live with that Right. I don't think that's it. I think he's smart in the sense that he knows how to survive. He's has emotional intelligence in the sense that in that 60 minutes interview with Leslie Stahl, Mm -hmm. his faux outrage over the tough questions. It's all bullshit. It's all he's just doing it because an abuser knows an abuser knows that people seek equilibrium. People seek a norm. And Trump relies on that. So in the smaller scale, he relies on the equilibrium of Leslie Stahl is going to be polite. Leslie Stahl is going to go, no, I don't mean that. Leslie Stahl is going to do what any reporter is going to do. You know, look at how they report on Trump and the cable news media, right? And one, they report on him. Here he has an announcement. He's going to say this. We're going to cover his Rose Garden thing. And then they're out as, oh, we're going to fact check him and blah, 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 right? Well, everything he says is bullshit. He's not a serious figure. And in addition to that, they spend 23 hours saying he's a threat to the United States. He's a criminal. He might be a Russian asset. He might be this, right? Some of it totally sensationalized for sure. But the other truth is, how can he be a threat to democracy, an existential threat, uh, uh, not a legitimate president, a Russian asset and all that, right? But why are we then letting Stephen Miller or Donald Trump come on the news? Why are we covering it? So it's all a, a game of bullshit, and he knows that. So he just says, well, I'm just going to say whatever the fuck I'm going to say, <laughs> and I'll let everybody else deal with it. He knows that everyone else will clean up the mess. Exactly. Well, if if the American people are seeking equilibrium in the election, that that could be an argument for getting rid of Trump, though. Yes, you're predicating it on the idea that this is going to be fair. So the <laughs> the first the first mistake was Democrats advocating for mail in ballots. Yeah, it's a huge mistake, huge misplay, self inflicted wound. But I mean, it's the pandemic. What were they going to do? Tell people to go be unsafe and go to the polls? You know what? But this is another inconsistency, right? Which is that how many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people went out and marched in the streets in May and June and and were right next to each other, including me, mm-hmm. although I wore a mask and a helmet and goggles. But like, <laughs> but the point is, is that, well, so that's okay, right? But then the but then Trump rallies aren't okay. Yeah. But going out and protesting is okay. And by the way, I'm fine with that hypocrisy. But your patriotic duty would be to go and show up physically to vote mm-hmm. or drop your ballot in a well, yeah. box and vote. But the other problem is this misplay. I get that it's a pandemic, but my argument would be that the Democrats advocating so vocally for it, as opposed to one, calling them absentee ballots. Mm-hmm. Don't call them yeah. mail-in ballots. When they called them mail-in ballots, what did you do? You opened up the Justice Department, Bill Barr, and the Post Office. You opened up state elections to federal interference. Mm-hmm. And that's the bottom line. Yeah, yeah I understand scary. all the things you're saying, but they opened it up to federal interference. And so what's going to happen now? That's their out. If, if the in, and by the way, what's the other thing they did through the summer and the fall is the virus isn't that big a deal. And let me show you how I'll get it. Pencil, yep, get it. Yep. We'll all get it. We'll all be fine. Hey, so now who do you think is afraid to show up on election day? Yeah. Not his people. Right. So who's going to show up? So then if you have in-person ballots that are counted, and mail-in ballots that the Supreme Court 
even as recent yeah. as last night with Kavanaugh's ruling, determined that the vote must be concluded and the count yeah. must be concluded That's at insane. midnight in Wisconsin. We keep, I agree. We keep saying it's insane. They're laying out exactly the rules. Yeah, they're telling us what they're going to do, as you said. And so I'll tell you who will save us. If we're saved, it will be black women, Latinx population, and black men. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and women, white women, uh, who finally flipped from Trump. Who came to their senses. <laughs> That's who will save us. You know who will kill us? Middle-aged, boomer, white liberals. And men, mostly. They won't go to vote. They won't get their absentee done correctly. They'll fuck it up for everybody else. <laughs> so that that's if you want to know the group that will cost us, it'll be them. Well, we'll we'll find out very soon. Coming up, Anthony shares his thoughts on the way SNL has handled Trump over the last 4 years and updates us on his bizarre feud with Alec Baldwin. 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So you were talking earlier about the different uh, comedic takes on Trump. And, you know, I have to ask you, have you seen, have you been watching any of the uh, SNL sketches with Alec Baldwin and Jim Carrey? I watched one of them. I can't remember if it was the first debate. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, and I I watched a little bit of the one from last, well, this is recorded later, but the third debate one, because of something I was doing with a, a fundraiser, uh, I, I wanted to just make sure I didn't overlap with any any jokes. What have you made of it so far? I have a lot of wonderful friends who work on that show, <laughs> and I think that they're very talented people, and I appreciate the work that everybody puts into the show. Yeah. I mean, you you haven't been shy about your, your thoughts on, you know, Alec Baldwin's impression compared to, to yours before, um, and I think, you know, it's... Be- I mean, I would, I would say this, that I would correct it in this way, which is that I think that we have different impressions. He's done it for a long time. And I don't care. I mean, I just don't care. It doesn't put any more food on my table, and it doesn't change my life at all. And also, I don't really care because, like, if my life was predicated on a Trump impression, I'm sure he'd say the same thing. His career isn't predicated on a Trump impression. His career is predicated on all the great movies he's done and the great work he's done on 30 Rock. So I feel like that whole thing came from some naive... Twitter behavior on a lot of people's parts that uh, I wish had not happened because it's created this thing that doesn't exist. But there's a guy uh, who's on the internet who, I mean, it's interesting how there are people who, now that he's not going to the White House Correspondence Center, there are people who are lobbying to play Trump at the White House Correspondence Center. You are not one of those people? Well, I wouldn't say I'm not lobbying, but I mean, people, people would say, would you do it? And there's a couple guys on the internet who are like, no, please, I'm the only man oh, who yeah. should play Trump. Yeah, no. And they're really kind of, there's like a lot of Trump competition. You I got own sucked it. into this. No one will top you they'll on tell this. Guys, they'll tell these guys. They say I suck. Nobody even knows who these guys are. Don't worry about it. I you can't suck. say bad words That's because a- I gave it up for Lent. But the- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's no, there's, no, there's no feud that you... Uh... There's never <laughs> been a feud. I've always liked him. I always enjoyed working with him. And I think that Alec is incredibly funny. I, you have to remember, I watched him do his Tony Bennett in a 30 Rock Live that we did at Studio 8H when it was like the last live. And it was the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen in person. So, um, and I think that... 
Jim Carrey, you know, is doing a really funny thing. The only thing I will say, and this is no slight to Jim Carrey, but I'm going to tell you who's got an incredible, incredible Biden impression is Dana Carvey. Oh, yeah. Dana Carvey's fucking great, great <laughs> impression. It's really funny. Yeah, there's all there's all this sort of hand-wringing that goes on with these things with, like, is Jim Carrey hurting Biden by making him seem too senile? Is he, is he going None too hard at him? None of that shit matters. You think any of that? You think, first off, let me tell you a couple of things that are true. 5% of the population even goes on Twitter. 62% of them uh, are Democrats. It's a total echo chamber. SNL reaches max, maybe, what, 10 million people? Probably Something 5 like that, million people. Yeah. Uh, those people aren't making their decisions based on uh, uh, on what Jim Carrey does. And the cable news, uh, you max out at 7 million, 8 million on the different channels. Nobody there is being reached or changed. Yeah. So uh, the truth of the matter is, is that most of the vote is boiled down to word of mouth and what someone sees on a Facebook post. That's the, that's <laughs> yeah. the sad truth. That's scary. Doesn't mean anything. Do you think there's a fundamental difference between what SNL does with their Trump or political stuff and what you were trying to do with the president show? Yeah, well, SNL, you know, th I think the thing too is like they're known traditionally for basically doing cyclical president you know they sort of amp up their po political stuff in election years right? right and then they and then there's sort of like well you know they reflect like a variety show the things that happen in the week on tv right mm -hmm. and in the world and politics is part of that but you know i think uh it's grown too i think it really grown out of the, it grew out of the 80s in particular when you had the paul simon debate, uh, you know, with the eight Democratic candidates and you had John Lovitz's Dukakis and, you know, you had all these great sort of portrayals. And I think it, 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 it built a pedigree into part of the show that that's what they do. But it's hard to sort of quantify them like they're that's part of SNL's routine is that they do a political nod, a couple of political nods, and then they you know, they do stuff that's around whoever's hosting mm -hmm. and they do stuff around TV and whatever's going on. And they also are writing a show in the week and reflecting that, um, you know, by the end of the week. Uh, what we did, uh, I think, was a totally different animal. We were on Comedy Central. And so I think there was also a thing of like, at least for me, of almost trying to skewer Colbert and and The Daily Show a little bit and sort of like... You know, I don't even think I was living in the idea of it being anywhere in the footprint of SNL. For me, my show was inspired by SCTV, first off. It was totally inspired by SCTV and Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara and Andrea Martin and, and John Candy and all the great stuff they did. And how they, you know, we also had didn't have a huge budget. So it was like, how do we create a big world with no budget? So uh, we lived in totally different territories, you know. I, I never worried... Uh, that what we would do would somehow overlap with what SNL did. Never, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think they they do the thing, and they've been accused of this by you know me and others of just sort of regurgitating what happened very sort of literally without adding a a point of view to it in a lot of ways. I think the fly thing though, that's right. I watched the fly thing. Yeah, I think the fly was really funny. Yeah, like that I, was a, that I, was I inventive like they were least. they were inventive. I think you know. I don't know. I maybe I'm just getting old or tired or whatever. <laughs> but like you know, you sort of go like everyone's trying, trying to do the best they can to make mm. something funny and and you know, and you know everybody. There's not a person who doesn't put something out there hoping it will be funny and good. Right. And sometimes it hits, and other times mm. it doesn't. Yeah. Well, they have plenty of Emmys and and success, so they don't they don't have anything to yeah, worry about there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I will say that I think you and I have uh, something in common is that we've both been blocked by Alec Baldwin on Twitter, though. So uh. <laughs> yes, well, a lot of people, Alec, uh, he's he's sort of the William Shatner of uh, blockers. <laughs> Shatner blocked me too. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brutal. I saw him at a convention when I was at when I was at Comic Con. And I made him sign this to me, and it says, "I will unblock you on Twitter." <laughs> did he but ever he never do it? Did. Oh. No, he never did. Do you know why he blocked you in the first place? Well, I don't think he runs his account. And I th and and what happened was he was 
he tweeted something about, I had had exchanges with him before that were friendly, and I wrote this really friendly. He said, no, no politics. I don't discuss politics on my, I think he's kind of Trumpy. And I, but I wrote, I go, well, why don't you come on the president's show, you know, and we could discuss it there. And I thought it was so, you know, in, innocent. Yeah. That I was got it? blocked. Ooh, wow. That was it. It was so, it was so minor. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So sort of looking forward, I mean, you've, you've done, uh, you know, you've been playing Trump for, for quite a while in different venues. And I know you played, you did something with Tracy Ullman. You appeared on, uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt as Trump. Um, do you, have you worried about sort of getting stuck in this character and, and not being able to break out of it? Or how are you, how are you feeling about it now, especially at the, as this, uh, you know, potential turning point is happening? One, I'm always happy to work. Two, I feel like you sort of let things have their natural course. And it's really your choice whether you get stuck in something or not. So, like, if you look at what I've done as Trump, right? I did my show, and then Tracy Ellman, who's one of the greatest sketch comedians ever to live, uh, who basically teed up The Simpsons and also, you know, by the way, was a force to be reckoned with in the era when... You know, you had things like In Living Color and Mad TV, different things challenging the sort of narrowness of the sketch world. So if Tracy Ullman calls you and says, hey, do you want to come over to the UK and <laughs> do Trump with me? You go, yeah, yeah. of course, because you're, you're incredible. And the fact that you have respect for me means you think I'm at least able to play with you, right? So then when Tina Fey, your former boss says, hey, do you want to be in my great show, by the way, whose star is one of your old friends, and you want to work with Carlock and all, and half of the old 30 Rock crew, and get to work with Jane again, you go, sure, yeah, of course, I'll do it. When uh, former SNL writers like Al Franken say, hey, come on my podcast and read a Trump story, I'm Al fucking Franken, a senator and one of the great political writers of the 20th century and 21st century. You say, yeah, of course. That was great, by the way, that uh, that story that you guys did. Yeah. So, like, I I've said yes to things that have been incredibly high pedigree moments in my life to get to do, to get to work with people, they are smart enough that I know that they're not having me on as a dancing monkey, that they're having me on for the insight of, of what I did. I would hope. I mean, I maybe I'm presuming. <laughs> How are you, Mr. President? I'm in another country. It's called Asia. It's really exotic and different. What have you been doing? Playing golf and eating hamburgers. Can I have those on my royal visit to England land? Actually, your trip's been uh, um, adjusted to a working visit. But I still get to ride in a gold carriage, right? And I want to meet Duchess Kate. But not if she's still carrying baby fat. I have high standards, the highest. So I got to do all that stuff. And then it definitely dried up. I mean, there was a point at which you sort of did all the things that you could do. But like, I'm not like sitting around, I haven't been like sitting around going like, how do I get my Trump back on the air? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? I had a thought about a special, maybe to try to pitch before the pandemic hit. I thought, oh, maybe there could be some election special. But then you sort of go, well, you know, Comedy Central clearly said they don't want to take <laughs> me to the dance anymore. Yeah. And you sort of go like, do I really want to do that again? And I think unless I had something that was really important to say. So what did I have to, important to say was I wanted to do it with James again. And, and I wanted to walk this character out the door the way I walked them in, which was with my, one of my very good friends who is an incredible impressionist, brilliant impressionist. And I wanted to walk out that door, predicting things and telling people what I think is true. The 2020s are going to be the darkest decade in American history, that we're in 1933 in Germany, and that there is no hope, that we don't have hope. There is only darkness to come. And, and that's just the truth. And there'll be hope in moments, but we have made a bed that we have to lie in now. And we all are in denial of our participation in how we made that bed. Fuck off and shut the fuck up. <laughs> Stop acting like you're above the system. We're all victims of the same system. So that's how I wanted to walk the character out. And you know what? I'm very lucky. I'm on season three of What We Do in the Shadows. My character, Sean, is, you know, I think some people know who he is. And I get to work with Matt Berry and all. 
you know, and Natasha and yeah, that show's so great. Yeah. And, and, and all these great people. And I, I get to do three busy Debras and work with my former writer for the president's show, Mitra Juhari and Sandy Honig and, uh, Alyssa. Uh, I get to work with all these brilliant, by the way, all these women who came from my show, because we had a majority women's writing room. We walked the walk way before anyone was yeah. requiring you to. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I look at Ray Sani and all the talented people that have come from that show who are succeeding now and go, well, I did my job. My impression got all these people who are already talented even more maybe visibility, Emmy Blotnick and Allison Leiby and Neil Casey and all these people. Neil was already visible. And so whatever, man, I, you know, I'll, I'll work, I'll create something. And again, either I'll create something and it will go somewhere on TV and be wonderful. Or I had my moment in the sun and creating still happens. And maybe just, I see it and 10 people see it. <laughs> I like to create for that reason. I like to be politically active for that reason. The rest of it's cake. You know, the rest of it's cake. When you're halfway through your life, you go, the rest of it is just, I'm happy this even happened for me. You know what I mean? And and I will say, you know, it, it was nice to pay off my debts. I'll say that. We, we end the podcast by asking comedians, uh, who, is a, who is another comedian that you kind of want to shout out who has made you laugh harder than anybody else in your life, either through their work or just in your, in your personal relationship with them? Um, who is a, who's a comedian that just makes you laugh more than, more than anybody else? Is it supposed to be like helping somebody or like, is it just anybody? No, just, just anyone who, who really makes you laugh. And, and what is it about them that really makes you laugh? John Gambling and Neil Casey. I mean, if I have to say who truly makes me laugh. And John Gambling played Steve Bannon on your show, yeah. John Gambling played Steve Bannon and 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 Neil Casey were both members of Death by Ruru at UCB and Instant Cinema at UCB. And um, Neil played the villain in Ghostbusters. He also played Andrew Jackson in the painting in President Show. Mm, yeah. Is there a story, uh, you know, with them that, that comes to mind where you really were laughing hard? There's the time, I mean, Neil and I, when we were roommates, I used to play, I, I used to, Neil would play my grandmother and I would play this like Make-A-Wish boy who was in a, in a hospital bed and they bought me a PlayStation or an Xbox and I was playing, you know, I forget whatever video game we were playing, probably call of duty or something and we would punk the you know people we were playing the game yeah. with he would be yelling as my grandmother in the background and i would be breathing heavy and having seizures and 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 talking about my sickness <laughs> while i was playing and and neil's grandma would just make me fucking laugh and john john and i to each other do long form like tonight shows that we perform for each other just each other <laughs> And the old Tonight shows, and uh, and he plays a version of uh, Ed McMahon that's sort of like Yoda, <laughs> and Ed McMahon, and I, oh, I find that so fucking funny. <laughs> that's uh, really great. And then of course, but then I have to say, like some up, you know, some comics now. I mean, there's Ashley Nicole Black, who's incredibly funny. Ray Sani, Sani, as I said, Mitra Johari is really brilliant. I'm trying to think. There's this guy. I'm trying to find him, actually, because I wrote with him, and he was so funny. And I wanna, I wanna give him a, a shout out. Oh, Maria Dakotas is so funny. Her, her Cuomo um, lip syncs. Oh my God, they are so. Fucking I gotta check that out. Funny. Oh yeah. Maria Dakotas is really great, really, really funny and and just whip smart and awesome. So uh Brent Terhoon. Brent Terhoon. He does like a anti, you know, Trump supporter character always in his car and oh and heather ann campbell is really funny she makes me laugh so those are people who make me laugh who i think are wonderful uh but yeah i can't deny that my two best friends fucking make me laugh the most <laughs> yeah you know well again thank you so much for doing this and I, i'm gonna try to put some a little more hope out into the world that everything won't be quite as dark as you're imagining for the future but as we've seen you're you've been yeah, it you've, will been, be. you've been right it all along be. so yeah it's gonna be awful for for everybody but uh, by the way especially people of color it'll be really terrible and i think if if you're white 
your responsibility is to figure out how to get your agenda and get your uh, bullshit out of the way, uh, and particularly to support, obviously, people of color in general, but particularly the black community, which has been, has an individual, unique American trauma that we should all be responsible towards. And that includes listening to all voices, including voices that you disagree with, uh, even some that I, I disagree with, but would support wholeheartedly simply because of just the gross inequality, abuse, and murder that happens on a day-to-day basis. And I think that especially uh, in the, the next coming months, they're going to really need uh, folks to, to step up and, and, and put our bodies uh, on the line mm-hmm. for them. Definitely. That's what I would say. And uh, and vote in person if you can vote in person. Vote in person for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Matt, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you so much to Anthony Atamanik for being my guest on this special Election Day episode. If you are somehow listening to this and haven't voted yet, please go do that right now. If you're enjoying this podcast, how about giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.